Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Lessons in Leadership, our Leaders in Law podcast. On this episode, you'll hear a discussion with former White House Social Secretary Deisha Dyer on leadership, overcoming adversity, and more. We hope you enjoy. So, uh, welcome, everyone. Welcome to Leaders in Law with Deisha Dyer. I'm Bridget Prova, the co founder of Leaders in Law. So, for those of you who may not know, Leaders in Law is a nonprofit speaker series that I founded in 2017 with my, <laughs> with my co founder, Daniel Russell. So, Leaders in Law aims to educate, inspire, and connect the greater world community through our events with inspirational leaders from a variety of fields and backgrounds. Daniel and I have had the pleasure of working with many organizations, both local and national, to make these events happen. We are especially grateful to the, our partner organizations, the Greater Law Community Foundation and America's Promise Alliance, as well as Middlesex Community College for sponsoring this series in 2020. Thanks to these wonderful organizations, we are able to put on events like tonight, where we'll be welcoming the former White House Social Secretary, Alicia <coughs> Dyer. This will be the first in a series of events focused on civic engagement and community involvement. Tonight, Alicia will be speaking on her life and career, as well as civic engagement, community engagement, and more. We are so glad to have her tonight. And now, without further ado, please give a warm welcome to Alicia Dyer. Like, I don't know nobody, I don't even know 
up community college, I would have never probably um, got to the White House. The second pivotal thing I would say um, is probably, I don't know, life experience, that's a lot. I just turned 42, that's a big life that I got to think about. Um, I think that going to a boarding school, I went to a boarding school in Hershey, Pennsylvania, called Mount Hershey, I'm not going to be here. But it's a school for kids. Who's familiar? Oh, you know Mount Hershey? Yes, my aunt works there, and my cousin's daughter is a teacher. Oh, yes, yes. Okay. So, okay. So, Mount Hershey, if you don't know, is a school for um, kids or children um, from financially um, challenged backgrounds. And Milton Catherine Hershey could not have children naturally, so they opened up an orphanage for orphan boys, um, and then it kind of expanded um, all the way. You know, now it's still open. Um, but, um, but I went there when I was nine years old. My parents um, decided, they were divorced, they decided basically just couldn't take care of me. It was a big financial burden, my brother and I, and put us in boarding school. So we were kind of, we grew up, I grew up with 16 brothers and sisters like in my house for eight years. Um, it was crazy. Um, but those were my family. So I would say those two pivotal moments that going to the Hershey kind of taught me how to get along with anybody and everybody. You didn't really have a choice. Um, so I would say those two things. And so how do you think your unconventional education path and career path kind of prepares you for your career in the White House? Well, you know, y'all, the White House is crazy. <laughs> so, um, so I'm very, I'm very like, on PC too. So like, who's ever filming this? Good luck. Um, um, so I would say that um, my unconventional path, I think the thing about it is, is like, we think, and again, I speak in Obama White House terms because after January 21st, I like lost all interest, right? So, <laughs> I, so I mean, I wasn't getting a paycheck, not because of anything else. And I was like, I'm missing my job anymore, right? So, um, so I think that, um, you know, we think that you have got to have all these pedigrees and all these things to be a public servant and to be a politician. And I'm not saying that because of any current administration or anything that I feel, but that's not really true. You have to just have a heart to serve people. And I've always served people, like since I was young. And you know, I used to do things with people who had HIV AIDS in the 90s when I didn't understand why the news was saying dumb things, like it's a gay disease. It's like that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, right? Like, and so I was like, I want to go out and learn about this a little bit more. So I've always served people. I've always done human rights stuff before it was like trendy. Um, and I think that all of that prepared me for the White House. Like, because once you get there, you serve the whole American public. That's everyone. And I think that, you know, I used to be a hip-hop dancer, a break dancer, and I used to be a, a writer journalist. And I never knew, like, I just did that because I loved the hip-hop culture, right? Like, I didn't think it would come back to, like, help me at the White House. Well, it did, because my last two years, I was in charge of the entertaining at the White House. So then I could go get DJs and, and you know, MCs and, like, or different artists. Like, I didn't know that it would all come back to me, so I think that that's how it prepared me a little bit. So, kind of what was your job like working in the White House, and how did you rise up the ranks and become the White House Social Secretary? I don't even know. So, um, so, <laughs> so my job, so when I went to the White House, so I was an intern for, in the fall of 2009. I was an intern in a department called Scheduling in Advance. The Scheduling in Advance department is the department that's in charge of the president's schedule and his travel. So if the president was coming from Lowell, Massachusetts, then there's a team that goes out ahead of him like a week ahead of time and sets everything up. So all the president has to do is walk in here and sit down. Like that's it, and he just does what he does. So my job was really the person that used to help prepare that with a whole team of people. I was an intern for that department, and then I got hired the following year I left, and I was like, that was amazing, I worked for Barack Obama, like I, I saw him like once, whatever. Um, <laughs> but I flew on Air Force One as an intern, which 
absolutely insane. Um, so I did that, um, and I left. And I was like, I'm done here. Like that was great, but I don't ever need to come back to politics again. I was like, that was that's good enough for me. Like I'm so thankful for that experience. And then um, they called me back for a full time job the following year. So the full time job I got was I was in charge of the interns in the department. So I was like basically essentially my boss when I was an intern. So then I did that, and then I was like, well, I want to travel with the president more, and I want to do more stuff in the world. And so there was a job open that was in charge of their lodging when they would travel. Like, if they would come here, like, I would call, you know, the UMass Inn where I'm staying and say, we need, uh, you know, 35 rooms. We need a suite, whatever. That was my job, which was great, because they always treated me great, because I would represent the president, so I always had a suite, too. <laughs> so, uh, and so I did that for a number of years, but then I missed being in touch with the community. So I switched to the next job, which was deputy social secretary. So I was number two in charge in the house, basically helping Mrs. Obama host everything behind the first openly gay social secretary, Jeremy Bernard. And we did everything in the house. I got to bring in community groups. When Jeremy said he was leaving, I was like, well, that's, that's great. I'm leaving too. And he's like, well, no, you should go for the job. And I was like, there's no way they're going to pick me for this job. This job is like the creme de la creme of like Washington. You are, you know, the social person <coughs> of the whole city, and I want to even go now. So I was just like, <laughs> so, um, so but I interviewed for it, and Mrs. Obama chose me for the position. And I think that, um, you know, the social secretary is a day, is a job that's every day. Your job is to welcome people into the White House from all backgrounds. So everything that, like, even like when the Pope came, for instance, I was like, the thing, like my first four months, they were like. The Pope was kind of like, well, that's nice. Like, who's in charge of that? You know? and, um, and they're like, well, you are. I was like, you are who? You know? And so, um, so I was like, well, what do I do? Like, who knows? Like, if somebody says to you, the Pope comes to your house, like, how, you know? Like, how do you prepare? Like, you know, so I was like, I don't know what to do. So, um, and so the first thing I did was I went to a Catholic mass. And they were just like, you're not doing church for him. I was like, well, I don't really know. <laughs> um, and so I was able to, in that position, and I tell the story because um, I was able to then bring in community elements. Like, for instance, the choir that sang for the Pope, and I love this, like, it was up to me to pick that choir. Out of everybody that was writing us all over America, like, I'm going to sing at the White House with the Pope and Barack Obama, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, you know what? Like, I don't want that. I want, like, a local choir, like of people who've been Catholics like all of their life and like will pass out when they see this man. <laughs> so, so I also wanted African American Catholics because we don't see a lot of them, right? So I found a historic church in DC that was a, an, an old African American Catholic parish and they said, and I said, um, you know, do you have a choir? And they were like, yeah, I was like, can they sing? And, and they were like, yeah, so I was like, can I come hear you? I heard about five minutes, so I was like, you're hired? And they were like, what? And, and it was this thing where that was my job. My job was to make sure that when people tuned in to watch the Pope and Barack Obama and at the White House lawn, that they saw this black Catholic choir that was like all people that were like over 60, right? And they were amazing. And it was one of these things where I realized that that's the power that I had to bring community to the White House, to bring myself to the White House to say, I'm gonna go pick these two students out of nowhere and you're gonna be the ones to greet the president. And so my job was really to make sure the, the White House represented America and to really welcome people in, whether it was the Pope or whether it was Beyonce or whether it was a student group. Like it was, everybody got treated the exact same way. Like you had to, hit, to go through security no matter who you were. And I, my job was to welcome people. That's all.
So that being said, do you have a favorite memory of you know being in the White House? So many memories. <laughs> um, I would say that. <laughs> how recorded is this? How recorded? <laughs> <laughs> so, I would say I was gonna be I was be honest with y'all because I came all the way in the cold. Okay, so, so I'll be honest. When I saw Justin Trudeau in person, I was like, <laughs> yeah, the man is like, woo. Um, so, <laughs> Because to them, even over an age of they, to them, they would never have thought they would see Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, and Malia and Sasha in the White House, and they would just cry and cry. And you just, and I didn't understand it. I was just like, okay, like you know, you got to keep keep the line moving. And the president said, Deja, like hold up, like let them take some time. And I think that that was always so special to me because for me. That was the power of what we were able to do. And, and before these people died, they saw this in their lifetime, things that they fought for in the beginning, who they never thought would happen. And I think my grandparents were a great example. My grandparents never got to come to the White House, but when President Obama went to Philadelphia, I surprised them. And they like totally forgot I was even there. And um, and they were just like crying. And I was like, oh my goodness. And it's just, you know, my, my grandfather did a lot with civil rights, my grandmother did too. So to them, I think those probably my more, more special moments, but Justin Trudeau was really <laughs> So when working in the White House, um, you probably encountered a lot of styles of leadership, you know, from all over the world. Did you have a particular one that impacted you or that you tried to Yeah. Um, that's a great question. I think for me, I never tried to be a leader in my entire life. Like, I didn't know. I just did what I thought was supposed to get done. I was just like, well, if nobody else is going to do it, I'm going to do it. I didn't know that was leadership. I just figured it was getting the task done. Um, you know, and often, you know, as you all can see, as I feel like we're already best friends here, like I'm very like vocal and very open and very honest about stuff. So my style of approaching people or problems was not one that people welcomed all my life. It was just like, she's loud, she's aggressive, she's negative, she always brings up this. And I'm like, no, it's not that. It's just that I want us to think a different way. And if, if I'm not being heard, I'm gonna shout, like I'm going to, and that's just how I am. And right now, that's like a thing, right? Like, women, be loud. Like, you know, back then it was just like this, you know, like this girl, like we'll be lucky if she makes it like a high school. So I think that um, I never realized the power of my voice and the power of my leadership style because I didn't even know what it was. I just always just did what I thought was right. Um, and I always tried to stand up for people all the time, even if I stood by myself. And it's isolating. So I think that when I became a leader at the White House, I probably didn't do a great job when I started because I never knew what I was supposed to do. And then it's just like, oh wait, like you're in charge of people and you're in charge of this and you're in charge of like, you know, putting together this entire program for Pope Francis with 12,000 people with Secret Service. And I'm like, why are you looking at me? Like, I don't know, you know? But I think that what I decided to do is instead of me always saying, I'm the leader, I'm in charge, to say, what do you all think is the best way to do this? Like, what are your ideas in this? Instead of always being my ideas. And that way, people felt included in the conversation. I was always, my leadership style was very clear about, I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, I have no idea how to do this. Like, I'm not afraid to admit that. My ego does not, because I think being a leader is you have to admit what you don't know. If you go out and you lead on something you don't know, you're going to mess up not only yourself, 
but everybody else too. So I am fine with saying, you know what, like I know how to do a lot of things, but this, I'm not sure how to do this. Like, you, do you all know how to do this? Can you show me how to do it or do it? And I think that that took me a while because that's an ego thing because you don't want to look like you don't know what you're doing as a leader. But then also I realized that empowering my team to be in charge wasn't a threat to me. So I think that that's how I tried to continue leading and that's how I try to even still work on today. Um, you know, because sometimes it's hard, you know, to sit back and say like, you know what, I'm, I'm in charge here, but I'm gonna give somebody else the floor and I'm gonna give somebody else credit for that, you know. But even like, you know, when some, one of my team members had a great idea for the president or something, I'd say, like, I'd wanna be the one to tell the president, like, it's my idea. But I'm just like, that's that's not a good thing to do, right? So I'd just be like, oh, it's so-and-so's idea. And he's like, that was a great idea. He didn't fire me, he didn't think I was terrible. He was just like, that's good for you, you know, giving shout outs to your team. So I think that that's the kind of style I try to lead with, being inclusive and then also being quiet and letting other people try out their leadership skills um, and checking my ego, which is really hard that I'm working on, I'm working on myself. So yeah. So what qualities do you think you displayed while being an intern at the White House that made them hire you the year after that and keep going up the ranks in the White House? Yeah, I mean, I wish some kind of boss was here and go, yeah, how about you answer? Um, so I think that, you know, what happened when I was a White House intern, I was, I was older than everyone else. So um, I think I'd already displayed a, a sense of maturity that just comes from getting older. Not that I was like, you know, more, see, I'm just like, I was just, I had been in the workplace for nine years. I had traveled, I had done all these things that a lot of these college students who were interns hadn't done. And so what happened in November um, of 2009, as you all remember, um, the big shooting in Fort Hood happened, in Fort Hood, Texas. And this, you know, one soldier shot another, like 12 or 11 soldiers and killed them, and there was a big thing on campus. And I remember when that happened, and, you know, not thinking, you know, obviously the president's gonna go, but like, you know, not thinking, you know, what I have to do with it is kind of like, you know, making spreadsheets or doing whatever I was asked to do. And they asked me to actually go to Fort Hood, Texas as an intern. And I was like, why am I going, like, what, for, what am I gonna do there? And the whole thing is, is my team, as I explained earlier, the advanced team is a team that goes ahead of the president. So every fall, the president goes to Asia, every fall for these summits. So the whole full-time staff was in Asia. There were only interns left in our department. And so I had to go. And they were, and I was just like, I don't know, what am I gonna do when I get to Fort Hood? And like, this tragedy just happened, I'm an intern, like I was legit like a secretary and hip hop writer like three months ago, and I was like, why am I going? And they were like, because we know that you've done social work things before, you know you're always in the community, we need you to go down there and help out with the press team when the president comes down. And I think that there was not time for me to think, well, how do I do this? There was a time for me to say, you know, I don't know how to do it, like maybe a younger person would have done because they just hadn't, they just had not been in that situation before. And so I think that I had to just buck up and I just had to get it done, right? And during the whole time, I kept thinking to myself, I'm just an intern, I'm just an intern. But I was like, I can't say that out loud. I just have to be here for these soldiers. I have to be here for this space. I have to honor these families. I have to do all these things and then also welcome the president. So I think that the maturity that I displayed while I did that under pressure, I think caught their eye. I think it was kind of like, I won't say that's the only thing, but I think that was one thing where it was just like, I just put my head down and was like, what, what needs to get done? Like, if the soldiers need donuts, if they need napkins, like, I don't care what they need, like, I was there. And then I was helping the press team cover it in a proper way. And so I think that that was probably, you know, 
what made them, I think, look at me differently, but I also had always mentored all my life, and the job that they were looking at, they hired me for, was to be in charge of other interns. So it was kind of like a natural fit, so that's what I would say. So you were very successful working in the White House. I, I hope so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what they said. Everyone has a, like, a personal definition of success, so how, how do you think you would define success? I didn't get fired, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I did not get impeached nor fired. I was even our president. Even our president, so that's how I define success. Um, but I think for me, um, you know, the success for me was, um, it was not defined by my personal climb. I never thought that I would be at the White House, and so I never had a goal of being like, I want to be at the top. I just kept chasing opportunities that spoke to what I wanted to do. I wanted to travel more. And I was like, I want to see the world more. So I decided to apply for the hotel job. I want to be able to like go get communities and bring them into the White House to sing or dance or do a tour. So I applied for the job that wasn't allowed to do that. And then I became the top person. So I never chased like I want to be at the top because I didn't know what that looked like. I don't care if they were like, you're getting Barack Obama's coffee every day. I'd be like, sign me up. Like, you know, I'd be like, I'm good with that, you know? Um, so I think that, um, so I think that really like success for me was defined by the faces of people that would come through the White House. I think that the groups and the lives that we change just by saying, you know, like for example, for when the National African American Museum opened in DC, I was like, what can we do? Like, what can we do that's so different? And I was like, well, marching bands are such part of the culture. Like, why don't we go get a marching band and be on the front lawn of the White House? And Obama's like, I'm sorry, what, what do you want in? And I was like, we're a marching band, like a whole marching band. And everyone's like, this is, I don't know how this idea. And I was like, just let's just do it. Let's just do it. And they listened to me, but we chose a college that wasn't one of the popular HBCUs on purpose because we didn't want somebody who always got clapped. So we chose a college that was amazing, like out of Tennessee, you know, and they were really great, but the lie with their faces when they met the president, they had no idea they were gonna meet him. He like walked outside while they were performing and they're like, ball, like they barely could keep it together. That to me, I know, was a memory that they'll always have, that they'll always go back to when they need to be inspired. And I was able to create those memories. So I think that's how I define success. It's by the, the memories and the legacy that I left through just my role of what I did. Um, so that's what I would say is how I defined it. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> So shifting gears a little bit, you obviously brought in a lot of different people and you worked to engage the community both in the White House and before. So how do you think that an everyday citizen can get more civically engaged and make an impact? That's a great question. Um, I think that there is no blueprint for being a public servant or getting involved in civic engagement. I think that we think that we have to have some superpower to be involved in something or we have to know, you know, who are who the this law and this legislation. Listen, I did not know any of that from the White House. You know, admittedly, like I'll you know say that I have no idea how any of this worked. I knew there was a Senate, I knew there was a House, I knew there was a president. I didn't know who was with who, how that worked, the division of lines. I saw the little Bill movie back in the day when we were in we were in high school. But I don't know none of that stuff. But my heart to serve was so much bigger than that. And I think that what people could do is what what do you actually like to do like you know is it baking stuff is it going out and signing people up 
take what you like to do and put it into public service, right? Like for me, I loved hip hop, the hip hop culture. I love hip hop music. I love break dancing. I love graffiti artists. I was like, how can I make this an art that I bring to the White House, right? When I applied for my White House internship, there was an essay that you had to write. And it said, like, write about, you know, how you would change a policy in America. And I'm like, I don't know. I just want to work here. I don't really know. And I wrote about something that I knew nothing about, which was the one child policy in China. I know nothing about the one child policy in China. But I, it, I, like, I was like, that's what they want to know at the White House. So that's going to make me sound so smart. A friend of mine read it and was like, this sounds so bad. Like, you, like, you basically like, put them in encyclopedia. Like, ah, and, and I was like, well, I don't know what else to write about. They're like, well, you love hip hop. And I was like, I can write about that, I guess. And so I wrote about how hip hop, the hip hop culture could be a tool to really fix urban education and reach youth. I didn't think anybody was going to pay attention to that. I wrote it from my heart. And next thing you know, like people are like, that's what caught our eyes. And it was so different. Like it was really you. I brought myself to, to, to the White House at all times, whether it was welcomed or not. I, I did. So I think that how people can get involved is don't, don't gauge your level of involvement by what somebody else has. Like right now, some people have time to go door to door. Some people have time to sign people. Some people love Facebook and they love arguing with people. Maybe that's not your thing. If that's not your thing, find out what is your thing. It could be local. Like this, everything, like I love that everybody's involved with the national election, but people don't realize that an election has consequences and rewards, right? So that goes to your city government, that goes to your federal judges, that goes to your school board. There's so many things to get involved with. So I think find your level of involvement, what you want to do, find out what you like to do, and just create a lane for it. That's it. Like they're gonna need whatever public servants going on right now, whatever policy, they need advocates, right? Also at the same time, know that if it's not your thing, it's not your thing. Some people are better writing checks, to be honest with you. I don't want some people interacting with the public, right? If you're better writing a check, write a check. Funding always helps as well. So I want people to know there's different ways of being involved. And it's not always just I have to be out there marching, I have to be out there doing, I have to be out there. Sometimes the best thing you could do is say, you know what, the best way I can help is signing people up online or doing phone banking from my house or writing a check for $25. Do what you can do, but never say that I can't do anything and never think you're not smart enough to be involved in the political process or the public servant process. Because I definitely, like I, I went to the White House with no degree and graduating in 2012 with my degree. But even so, I was just like, you know, I was there for three years without a college degree, but I still, I still somehow climbed up because I was always myself. So, um, in fall of 2019, you were a fellow at Harvard's um, Institute of Politics. I am. So, yeah. <laughs> so, how did that? What was that program like, and how did that get started? Um, so, I was um, a resident fellow at Institute of Politics at Harvard Kennedy School. And Harvard Kennedy School, as you all know or don't know, it's um, you know the graduate arm of the of Harvard, one of the government school. But they have a thing called the Institute of Politics, which is for undergrads only. So they have six resident fellows come in. We actually live there. That's when this was originally scheduled, when I lived here. Um, so, um, so we actually live there right on campus. And we teach a study group, but they call it a study group, they want to call it a class. Um, and you make up the study group. Like you have to think of yourself what you're going to teach. So last year, um, Harvard came to me, actually 2018, sorry. Harvard came to me and said, you know, your name's being floated for this fellowship program. And I was like, <clears throat> for, you know, for, okay, that's, that's what, okay. Um, and I said, well, you know, at the time, I couldn't afford, you know, it's paid 
I couldn't afford to take off this great job that I just had for three and a half months to come up here. Like, it just wasn't an option for me. And so I said, well, I'm really sorry. Like, I can't even apply this year. I was like, but any other time, like, you know, keep me posted, keep me in the loop. Oh my goodness, this is amazing. And I had dinner, though, with the students who were interning in New York that summer. So I'd already been connected to the school. Then a year passed, and I was like, I want to do something different with my life. And I'm very, like, it's probably not, it's not the best advice, but I'm very, like, I don't want to do this anymore. Find something else to do. Because to me, I don't ever know when life is going to end. And so I'm just like, I want to keep doing as much as I want to do whenever I want to do it. So then I was like, I mean, I've been at my job for like a year and a half, and I was like, I'm done with this job, it's amazing, great. But I was like, I want a challenge, I'm not using my brain. I said, oh, that Harvard Fellowship, they called me last year, let me see. And just so happened that the application process was open, um, and it was like closed in three weeks. And so you have to put together an eight-week eight week course of what you're going to teach it, teach it every week, and it's open to everybody. So the Cambridge community, undergrads, grads, doesn't cost anything, doesn't have homework. It's basically a study group of you just being able to talk about a topic. The topic that I chose was called From Imposter to Impact. And it's how to get over it. It's really from me being feeling like I had imposter syndrome and I didn't believe in myself to then having an impact. So we spent four weeks talking about imposter syndrome, believing in yourself, confidence, controlling your own narrative. Then we spent the other four weeks being like, okay, what impact you can have on the world when you actually believe in yourself? Because the problem I think that even Michelle and Barack Obama always said, well, Mrs. Obama always says, you know, Disha, it's never my doubt that you could do the job, but I don't know if you believe in yourself enough to do the job. She never, she never had an issue with like how much I did or did not know. She was like, but if you don't believe in yourself, I can't give you a promotion, right? And it's Michelle Obama, so you like lie. You're like, I don't believe in myself. I believe in myself. <laughs> totally did not believe in myself. Um, and so it took a while for me to realize that, like, I'm Deisha Dyer. Like, I'm the White House Social Secretary. Like, I'm in charge of all this stuff because it was a stu It was a stunning the whole world that I even had a job at the White House. But then once I got promoted to this top job, it stunned a lot. Everyone was like, "What? Like, who's this random person?" I was like, "That's what I'm saying." We don't know who this, who was this person out the blue that got this top job, and I'm like, I don't know. So I feel like, um, so I feel like at Harvard I was able to teach that, and it was really great because I think everybody goes through that. So it's not, it wasn't just something for the Ivy League kids. It wasn't something for just you know people that have been going to politics. I think at some point everybody has this thing where they feel like they don't deserve whatever they have, and I don't know how we got. I know how I got there personally, but I don't know how we have not fixed that even more. We stress so much about going to school, being smart, but for some reason we miss the part about believing in yourself and the confidence and comparison syndrome. And I feel like at Harvard, I was able to really speak to a lot of students because a lot of them feel that way going to Harvard. I don't care what people think about it, there's a group of students who still feel like they don't belong there, right? And they would come talk to me every week like, I, I you know, it's freshman, but I think I need to leave. And I'm like, why would you leave? Like, what, why? They're like, because you know, we were sitting in class and. Everybody knew about this poem but me. I'm like, you're paying to learn. That's the point of you being there. Like, you're supposed to, if you don't know something, that's good. Your money's being well spent. You're learning. You know what I mean? So I think that, like, my class was all about that. And it was amazing because I got to teach in different classes. I got to be a guest speaker at places. And I loved it because it was the first time I took off from my actual job and said, like, I want to actually pursue this avenue. And it was tough because you had to, like, interview with students. And they were amazing. 
they were just like, how are you going to be interesting? I'm like, I don't know, play songs, dance, I don't know. Um, but we had a great time, and I'm, I'm bummed that it's over. It's only one semester, and then we, we had to move out, move back home to kick us out. But it was amazing. So you worked at Harvard, you worked at the White House, but you also have your own nonprofit or a nonprofit that you helped found, right? right? Mentoring um, young girls. So could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Like I said, I have to start stuff. Um, so <laughs> I don't, even if I don't know how to do it, I'm like, well, I gotta figure it out. Um, so I have an organization called Be Girl World, and the organization is focused on diversifying travel. So we started this in 2014, and it's really to up the numbers of study abroad, to see black students to study abroad. Right now, out of all, everybody that studies abroad, 7% are black students, only 7%. Um, and so I thought that number was just trifling. I was like, this is just ridiculous. And so in my home city, in my home city of Philadelphia, I went back and said, like, you know, with a friend of mine, what if we start a program that kind of addresses this in high schools? Like, maybe it's these girls don't realize, like, what study abroad is, that they are, it's possible for them to do it, or they think that it's so unaffordable that they just don't try. And I think that that really spoke to me because I think many times, and I'm sure you, a lot of you can relate, you just don't even try something because you don't think you're gonna get it and you don't think you're gonna do it. So you psych yourself out before you even try. So when we started talking to the high school girls, they would say to me, like, I'm not gonna get that. So I don't, I'm not gonna get that. I'm not gonna, you know, I, I would apply for a student exchange, but like, that's $2,000, I don't have that. And I would say, well, how much is the application? They'd say nothing, I'm like, so it costs nothing to apply, right? So for me, starting, starting like the White House internship was not paid. I had no idea how I was gonna pay for that. But in the end, I figured it out, right? And so for me, I was like, we can start this program in Philadelphia. We take um, 12 high, um, sophomore and freshman girls in high schools, and we basically take them through a two-year program. They learn global education, they learn languages. We take them to like DC, New York, all over. They get their passports. Their parents get their passports. A lot of times their parents don't have their passports. And then at the end of the two years, then we take them on an international trip. So we've done, we have to do it every two years because we don't have a lot of money. So, and only 12 girls because we don't have a lot of money. So, um, so the first year we did London and Paris, and that was 2016. And last year, 2019, we did um, London and Madrid. And we have a really great, I have a really great network in London. So I'm able to like, we go over there for eight days, we partner with the university where we stay. Um, they could go through a whole program over there as well. Like they go to the embassy. Um, and it's a lot of work, you know, but I think that, you know, for me, now we've seen the first class of girls, they're in college and now they're studying abroad. There are three of them studying abroad from the class. And that to me is like, we did our job and we planted the seed. And I never want to give the illusion that travel is unaffordable. You know, like we have this whole Instagram culture now where people see like somebody in the middle of the Maldives, like, you know, the pretty flowy. And I'm like, yeah, but if you just go from here to like Maine, that's traveling. Like don't be ashamed to feel like that's not traveling, right? So we have that and then we started a scholarship actually for, um, for girls in college. And so we awarded for the first time last year two scholarships. Um, one for a girl from Philadelphia who's in college, going to college in Philadelphia and success to study abroad, she has $2,000. And another one for a black girl who's just anywhere in the country and she also got $2,000. So that's a program that I started, and it's, it's good, it's a lot of work. Um, but we've seen the results, and I mean, and for me, like, you know, we're shifting gears to do more scholarships now, um, because now there's so many places that teach girls about studying abroad, but I would say that's what I, that's the nonprofit that I started. Is there anybody who's, who you've looked up to, or whose style of leadership you've looked up to throughout your career? Um, that door, that door, 
Because I've watched them under pressure. Like, I've watched them get death threats. I've watched their kids be, I, I mean, I've watched it all. And somehow, some way, they have, they have remained calm. I don't know. In any, I don't have any children. But I tell you one thing, if somebody was talking about my child, I would probably show up at your front door, right? In some way, they stayed so calm. And they've led a lot of times in silence. And that's not something that I even know how to do. But I think that for me, that was such a leadership quality because there are so many times where they could have snapped out. Like, I mean, <laughs> I mean there's so much that happened. And so they remained calm when people would call them racist things, sexist, say Michelle Obama looked a monkey. Like, I would have found the person that called me that straight at their job. Like, you know, so I think that, like, for me, you know, their leadership style and how they were really helped me shape who I was as a leader because that's when I knew that like I didn't always have to fight back. Like sometimes the fight is an instant, sometimes the fight is long term. And they really showed me that. So I would say I look up to their And then my dad. My dad's just my dad. Like he's one of those like, all right, Tisha, well, I don't have to go to bed and get up, so whatever it is, it is. I'm like, that's a good attitude, Dad. <laughs> like, you know, so I think that like his carefreeness sometimes so if you could impart you know, one message on today's youth about leadership and life, what do you think it would be from your experience? I'm not the one to do that. <laughs> um, I, would, I would say about leadership and life, and like life, like life. <laughs> um, I would say, um, gosh, this is hard, because I'm 42 now, right? So, I, so I, I'm not in the same space that you, I'm, I recognize I'm not in the same space you all are, and I sound like an old fogey person, but I think that what I would say is, um, Life is extremely short. As, as much as you focus on your physical health and your academics, watch your mental health very closely. Because, um, because what happens so many times is that, even I can speak about my parents, my parents never got healed from some things that happened to them. And then that passed down to me. And then before I know it, I'm manifesting things that I didn't even realize, not taking care of myself, working so hard that I burned myself into like, I want to. I want everybody to know that I'm the best. So I'm going to burn myself into craziness. But that got me high blood pressure, right? And so now I'm only. I was on four medicines. I'm only only one medicine. But I realized that like I didn't take care of myself enough, and I wanted to change the world so much that I forgot about myself. And that happens quickly, and it's not noble, right? It used to be cute to be like, why well, think about everybody but myself? But I have to say, but it's really not when your blood pressure is high, you're rushed to the hospital, like you know, all these things. Preserve yourself. Like honestly, we're like we're gonna need you for a long time. Preserve yourself. Don't also look at mental health differently from physical health. Like if you, I always tell people that yesterday on my Instagram, which you all should check out. Um, <laughs> yesterday on my Instagram, I posted like my blood pressure from last year at this time, which was two ten over one thirty two, right? I posted it yesterday, which is 137 over 74, right? That is drastic difference. I don't care what my body looks like. What's, how cute am I going to be if I look really great and I'm in the casket, right? So watch your mental health very closely. Talk to your friends. It's not somebody's not weird. Somebody's not whatever. They're going through something. So I think that that, I think, is probably the most important thing that I think that 
we should watch out for because the pressure, I think, on young people to change the world, to be the best, all these things, it's just like, that's all well and good, but like at what, at what cost? At what cost? You know, I'd rather have somebody here and alive and working down the street at a subway or whatever than somebody completely burnt out, you know, suicidal thoughts, whatever, on Wall Street, any, any day of the week. So I think that balance yourself and know that there's a place for you here and, and never feel like you don't deserve the opportunity. Like if you're there, it's because you deserve it. If you didn't get it, it just wasn't for you. Keep it moving. So I think that had I took all those lessons back then, that I would have probably got my life together sooner, but eventually, obviously, that did come together. But yes, that's what I would say. So now do we have any questions from the audience? Questions. About anything. Great. <laughs> I just can't think. <laughs> Hi, the uh, funding for uh, the, the overseas, uh, bringing the kids abroad is a fantastic idea. How did you uh, get um, uh, funding for that? Did you did you get grants for that? And, uh, That's a great question. Thank you for thank you sure. for your kind words. Um, so no, so um, I don't I don't know how to do grants. I don't know how to do anything, <laughs> right? And I think that when you have this really great idea, people love to tell you how to do things. They're like, go apply for this grant. And you're like, how do you do that? Like, you just write the grant for me and then I'll sign it. Um, so we applied for so many grants and we basically got denied from almost every one of them. Partly because, this, this is part of the reason why, is because when people look at our program, they see it's a great educational program. It's wonderful for kids, young, wonderful for young black girls, but there are so many other problems in the world today. Like there's homelessness, there's you know, lack of education, there's like, you know, kids are going to school not eating and with clothes. Like, there's so many other issues that they didn't see travel mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as a necessity mm -hmm. that these kids, so we got, we were bumping heads against other programs for, for funding, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's why we got turned out from a lot, but how we did, we did fundraisers like everyone else at Applebee's and all those fun things. But then what we did was, um, I get paid to speak usually, and so when I, instead of an organization saying, you know, we'll pay you $5,000 to come in here, I'd say, well, how about you do 4000 to my organization instead? Because we're also a 501c3. So I would say, you get, the, you get the credit and we get something. So I would go speak and then I would say like, just $2,000 or whatever. Then we actually learned how to do like the donation matching in like the workplace. And we got a lot of money that way where we're on like all the registers where you know you, you work, it says like, you can donate to a cause. So we got a lot of money that way as well, but also like even GoFundMe, like my friends and family really yeah. came out and supported it. Um, you know, we got all airline partnerships, we never got any of those approved. Hotel partnerships, none of that ever got approved. But London, like universities over in London, like they did stuff for us. I think that our biggest issue is people always say, I wanna come spend time with the girls and talk to them. And you're like, I have enough people talking to them, you got any money? Like I mean, at the end of the day, <laughs> We don't need somebody else going to talk to them. Right. We need somebody else saying, like, even if you have a, a partnership with a luggage company, somebody help us out with that and got all the girls' luggage. Right. And she's like, I can't donate money, but I have a great person who works this organization who does luggage. And I was like, whatever, we'll take whatever. Yeah. Or Estee Lauder saying, like, you know, we can't give a grant, but like, we'll give you a travel kit with all the stuff inside mm -hmm. of it. So that's how we really kept it running, but that's why we can only do it every two years, mm -hmm. and that's why we can only do it with 12 girls. And so we're thinking now, every after every class, we take like eight months off, and so we're ending that eight months, so I'm like, ooh. Um, so we're gonna be recruiting a new class, but every year we think this is such a great program, how can we expand it more? 
So one of our things now is to probably do a class only for one year and then do more scholarships. And then we're also gonna start planting it in other cities. And so that's our next, our next plan. But the grant situation is just tough. Right. But you know, we're, we're, we're gonna keep trying, we don't stop. You know, we'll keep trying, so yeah. Good for you, that sounds, sounds like a great idea. Thank you so much, thank you. And there's a hand right there. Until months later, 
And Pete's like, oh, better give this to you. I'm like, what? I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, and this is, the Pope is smiling. I'm smiling, like, uh, you know. Um, but the best moment was when he got the car and left because I was like, out of my hand. <laughs> but the problem was the net, not the problem, but the other thing is the next day we had the president of China coming. So there was no, there was no break for me. And the New York Times wrote an article the week before, and it was like. This is this is her this rookie Super Bowl like Super Bowl of events in Washington like we don't know who she is but good luck. <laughs> all right, well, all right, we'll figure this out. And the next day I had I had to do this all over again with a different leader, right? So a more unpopular one, like not twelve thousand people came out, but still. But I think that like of course I was nervous and freaking out. But what are you gonna do? Like it has to get done whether you're ready or not. So I just said I have to trust. Everything's gonna go okay. I got my flats on. I'm sewn into the stress. Like, my spanks ain't working. Like, you know, that's the only regret is my best spanks in the photo. I'm like, I wish I would have got that photo. Um, but, um, but the Pope was happy. The president was happy. Everybody was so, we had no protests. We had no, there was a Pope that came from another presidency and we get there with a streaker. And I was so like, let, let one person go out of the line. Like, if one person would have stepped out of line, well, we were on that lawn, I would have probably body slammed. I was just like, no. you know, I was like, I'm la I don't want like this whole thing to be marred by like somebody running, but 12,000 people, not one person protested. Not one person yelled out of hand. Not one, everybody was holding up like pictures like their grandmother, but like, that was really it. So I think like, um, yeah, that was, a, that was a crazy time. But how, how wonderful. Like how wonderful that I had that memory, right? So yeah, wow. So you mentioned that you like to move around from project to project because like, when you're with something for too long, you kind of get bored. So do you ever feel like you take on too much at a time? And like, how do you deal with that? Every day, all day. Um, um, so that's a great question. I always feel like I take on too much at a time. But I also, you know, I'm also old enough to know that that doesn't work because when that happens, I spread myself so thin that I'm mediocre in everything. So I'm like, I'm gonna do all these things, but I cannot, it's not possible to show up as your best self the way you want to show up when your intent of taking the project happens. So for me, um, obviously the White House, I had a choice, right? Like we had different projects, but I think for me since then, um, you know, I have to say no to a lot of things that I love. I have to say no to a lot of things I think I should be involved with. I have to say no because I'm like, I have to say no to invitations because it's either like, I can't eat out tonight because my, my, my blood pressure is high with salt, or like I'm tired and I have to be up the next morning for this event. And I want to show up like I want to be there versus showing up because I kind of like it, right? So I think that what I start to do is you, I have to be, and you have to be, if this is your issue too, is like you have to be okay letting some things go. Like, and I don't know, I mean, I don't, not, don't know you, but for me, I was afraid that people would think that I wasn't capable if I did not handle all of the things that I could handle. And so I, now I'm like, I, no, I, I can handle all of these things. And they'd be like, you, you can't. Like, you mess this up. You're late to this. Like, you're doing this. Like, you're not showing up as your best self with these things. And so I had to let that part of my ego go where I thought people would think bad about me if I wasn't the person that was doing everything. And that was hard for me because I had, I mean, I just did that like two years ago, to be honest. So I had four, like, all these years of just being like that. So what I do now is I say, you know what, like I can't, I can't be in charge of this project, but maybe Bridget's in charge of it. Like Bridget, like, what help do you need with this? Like I'll be here to help you, like for a little support, but I can't 
I have to be very clear, like, you know, unfortunately, I, I don't have the time, I can't commit myself to this right now, but, like, if you need me to send an email for you or something small, I got you. Like, if you need me to bake a brownie or something, I got you. But I can't show up to this all the time. And you have to be okay with that because, again, burnout is real. It's extremely real. High blood pressure is very real. Stress is very real. Once you get into that pattern, you don't realize that you're even in it. And it becomes a way of life until it's too late and, like, your school's suffering. And things that really matter are suffering. So I would say that that's how I dealt with it is I had to check my ego. I had to realize what I love to do. And, like, for instance, B-Girl, an organization which I love and adore, but when we were in Spain with those girls, I was like, oh, no. Like, <laughs> these girls on the last day, or actually the last three days, I was like, I cannot do this ever again. Like, y'all, this is why I did not have children. Like, y'all are crazy, you know? And I'm like, maybe it's time for me to step back from that goal and just support the next person that's going into it. Not only that, but I had to let go of the fact that I'm not the one that could do it best. There's other people that can do things good, too. So why don't you let them have a chance and they need, they try and they need to support them. So that's how I, I do that. So, I don't know if that, does that help? Okay. <laughs> yes. Hi, hi, Disha. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, quick question. So, you have your, you were born and raised in Philly, correct? All day, every day, yes. I love that. And you said you're part of the hip hop culture and you're a hip hop writer. I was. Okay, so the local dance community is actually super huge for oh. hip hop and urban industry, and mm -hmm. I'm a dancer myself as well. So mm -hmm. I'd like to talk more about how you got involved in hip hop yeah. and all that, because I love the culture and community too. Yes, I love the culture as well. So I think that for me, I've always loved the hip hop culture. And, and for me, when I was growing up, um, people always used to say hip hop was just rap music. And I used to be like, there's, a, there's, like, there's more to it. There's like graffiti, there's beatbox, and there's DJ, and there's, and there's all these things. And I was like, that nobody ever talks about, right? And so I started really dancing out at clubs all the time, like just like getting to know B-boys and B-girls and just hanging out. And then that was around the 90s. And then the 90s also was the time where rap music was getting a lot of flack for being against women, a lot of sexism. And I used to be like, that's true. Like there is a lot of sexism in rap. But there's also these women that hold the culture up that nobody talks about. These women dancers and graffiti artists and DJs. I'm like, they're so amazing, but nobody talks about them. So then I started writing about them out of nowhere. I was just like, it was like something called phillyhiphop.com. And I was like, I don't know what that is. But like, I, was, I want to interview like women that are in the culture, right? That took me to like the Rocksteady crew and getting another Rocksteady crew in New York and being like, they have pulled up the culture since like the 70s, right? The dancing. But all people see is like the tagging graffiti and the bad rap music, but they don't realize what hip hop is. It's a global movement, right? And so for me, I always chose to really highlight those people that were holding the culture up. And there was one, and it was before underground was like a thing, right? So like underground is these really corny backpacking, like nobody knows what these, these kids are doing, but these are kids who like, they're artists, right? And so I always looked for the people that were holding up the culture that were never getting talked about outside of rap music. And so that's how I got involved, and that's how I stayed involved. And even so, even now, you know, we at the White House even, and we had a thing about American, there's this program that PBS wanted to do called American Music. And I looked at the roster and I'm like, first of all, I'm about to fall asleep looking at this thing. I'm like, second of all, like, where's hip hop on this? Like, what? And they're like, what? I'm like, we need a, a rapper. We need like a break dancer. We need, and they're just like, oh, that's a great idea. And so we brought it, a hip hop artist there. We brought it, a break dancer. And everybody's like, this is really cool. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, 
You know, so I feel like, you know, that's how I was able to uphold the culture at every level that I went to because I was like, we're not going to forget about what the hip hop culture is and we're not going to let it be taken over by like commercialism. Like, that's fine. I want the culture to make money, but also let's not forget about the people that are still holding it up in neighborhoods and these after school programs are teaching kids how to be poets and to dance and to do, you know, graffitis and to murals. Like, we have a thing where we just don't, we don't talk about that enough. And so that's kind and how I got into it and how I sustained it. Did you ever dance? I did. I did. I danced for a number of years. Um, and then um, uh, 28 hit about, and I was like, nah. And so uh, it's funny because like my students at Harvard were like, we want to see you dance. And I was like, do you want to take me to the hospital? I was like, which one would you like? How would you like this to happen? You know? And um, and so yes, yeah, so I did used to dance, yeah. Thank you. And I miss it a lot. So yeah. Thank you. Any more questions? So you went to the internship in your late 20s, so non-traditional compared to young college kids. Um, how much trepidation did you have entering the opportunity? You said you kind of didn't believe in yourself at times, and were you accepted by the, the interns? Um, was, I, was I accepted? By the other interns. I, I was. Um, so I was when I was 30, and so at this point I would already passed my 20s. And, um, and my, I mean, first of all, like if somebody told you right now, like, go, I mean, Spider Oaks came out the White House, but it, it was like, whatever. But if somebody said to you right now, like, go apply to work at the White House, you'd be like, like, are you talking to somebody behind me? Like, who does that? You know what I mean? Like, who work? We don't know how that, you think it's all friends and family and politicos. And so when I applied, how this happened was, is I always wanted to work. I thought Barack Obama was amazing. And I was like, this man's amazing. Like, I love this man. Like, I love what he does and what he talks about. Um, but I was like a, like I wouldn't say a nobody, but I was not notable, you know. And so when the election was happening against McCain, I'll never forget this, in 2008, my boss, who's amazing, who I still love, from my real estate company was a Republican. And he said, oh, I said, like John McCain, John McCain, John McCain. I have to be like, oh, okay. So Barack Obama was on the front of a magazine. I took out this, I ripped off this picture of the magazine. I put it at my desk just to annoy him. And, just like, and I was like, I'm going to work for this man. I'm going to leave you and go work for him. That's a, it was a joke. Like, it was not for real. <laughs> and I was like, and my boss, John, who I still love to this day, was like, ha ha, you're right. Like, he's not going to win and you're not going. And I was like, I know, ha ha. Oops. And so, <laughs> and so when Barack Obama did win, I was like, he won. And then John's like, yeah, he won before. And I was like, I'm going to go work for him again, joking. Um, and then so about six months later, um, I got an application for a White House internship in, through like an AOL listserv. That's how long <coughs> this was. And it said, you, you mentored a lot of people in the community. Please get this out to the girls that you mentored and the men that you mentored. And they're like, the new president's looking for White House interns. And I was like, well, maybe, maybe I could do this. I was like, I'm sure there's a requirement about age, about some kind of like status, some kind of like, you gotta pay this, or you gotta go to Ivy League, or whatever. But there wasn't. All it said was you've gotta currently be in college, or you had to release and return from the military at the due. <clears throat> and so I was like, well, that's me. And it said you had to write two essays on my like, I'm a journalist. Easy for me to write. And so I applied. And when I applied, I didn't hear anything for a really long time. So one night at 9.45 p.m., my phone rang. And it's an unknown number. So you know it's an unknown number. You think it's a bill collector, right? So I was like, I the phone like super well. I was like, hello. And, um, and like, this is the White House calling for Diary. And I was like, how am I help? 
when I set up an interview time for her for her internship application. And I was like, oh, this is Tisha. Like, I got really real then. And they said, well, let's do this tomorrow. And I said, well, you know, you're, you know, I can do it right now. Because my whole thought process was, if you're calling me at 9.45 p.m., tomorrow anything can happen. You work at the White House. You could easily cancel an intern's interview. Like, I said, we could do it. They're like, you want to do it right now? Like, it's almost 10 o'clock. I'm like, right now. I did the interview. It went well, but on the other end of the call, on the phone, was like a 23-year-old kid from Iowa. Right? And his name was Patrick, who I adore. But I was just like, who is this kid? Like, you know, interviewing me, I'm, I'm like, I'm being interviewed by a kid. And so, um, and so he interviewed me, and it was one of these things where it was just like, and I say kid because, like, you know, I'm 42, so I'm okay. So he interviewed me, and I interviewed him again for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then finally, I found out, it's very that part of the story of how I've done that, but finally, I found out. And when I found out that I got the internship, I, first thing my thought process was like, I don't have any money to do this. Like, this is unpaid. Like, I don't know anybody in DC. Where am I going to live? And so I went on Craigslist. I don't advise anybody, especially if you're, if you're going to do this, y'all. And I went on Craigslist, and I was like, room for rent, you know? So I found a room for rent, and these two people, they were getting divorced, and they were raising money for their divorce. Proceedings. And this, y'all listen, that's for times. So the, they, were, they were renting out their oldest daughter's room who went to college so they could pay for their divorce. And I was like, how much is it like $300 a month? I'm like, sold. And so that's where I stayed for my internship. And then I went and applied for jobs like all over the city at like Kroger, Starbucks, everywhere. And I was like, I can't afford this. I'm making this work. I don't care what I have to do. But long and behold, I didn't have to, I applied for jobs, got a job at a grocery store. And I was like, I'll just do this on the weekends and nights so I have money to eat. And when I left for my internship, my real estate company, my boss, who loved the game, still talking to this day, he was like, they did a fundraiser for me for $4,000 they raised, and then the head of the company gave me $10,000. And I, and I was like, oh, I already signed the lease. <laughs> but, um, but that's how I made it work. It's because I didn't know that I was going to get the internship, and that's why I say don't psych yourself out before you even apply. Because I had no idea I was getting an internship, and I had no idea I was going to DC with fourteen thousand dollars. That I that that that's really what got me to be able to do the internship. So I think that my hesitation was really that I wasn't good enough, that I that I I didn't fit the bill, that I wasn't whatever, and that that followed me for a very long time. I'd say that I just kind of shed that in my last year in the White House. The whole time I was there, I was like, I just went to community college. I just you know even when I graduated in twenty twelve. It was re-election. So I was like, I graduated. So I was like, okay, great, I'm fine. I graduated my associates, we're done. And everyone's like, and they, they threw me like a little party at the White House. And I was like, what is this for? They're like, because you graduated. I'm like, oh, it's just community college. And Barack Obama's like, don't you ever say it's just community college. We're so proud of you. Like, you graduated college while working for at the end of the White House. Like, I went home on the weekends, and I took online classes for all those years at the White House. So I would say that, like, for me, I just didn't believe that I was worthy of the opportunity. But the other people on the other end did. And what they were looking for was somebody different. <coughs> and the other interns, when we got there the first day, and like, I wish I had a picture of the first day, y'all, I looked like a mess. I was like, I didn't know how you dress business, and so I wore like khakis, I had no idea. I went to Ross Dress for Less and bought this blazer. And I bought, right now these really are prescription, but back then I had really, I had great eyes. And I bought fake glasses so I looked smarter. <laughs> and I took it out of I had a hoop earring, I took it out and put this this one in, this little stud. And I was just like trying to blend in. But I realized we were all nervous. Like everybody 
none of theirs. Even the kids that went to Harvard and Penn were like, like no, everybody was on the same boat. So my fears were really inside of me. And at the White House, no one ever treated me, ever, like I was just a community college student. None of them ever were like, you're just an intern. I never, that never happened, which really says that it was really internalized inside of me. Any more questions? Hi, I'm also an event planner uh, and a public servant. Uh, I love what you said about creating memorable moments, uh, and I'd love to hear some more advice on how to do that. And also, whenever I meet other planners, it's always like we share those war stories of like this crazy thing happened, there was an elephant in the hotel box around. And I'm sure you have some really interesting ones because the White House is such a unique venue. Yes. I'd love to hear a couple of those. Am I still being recorded? <laughs> <laughs> okay, this part y'all can't tell. Put your phones down. So, okay, so go back to Justin Trudeau. So, <laughs> but no, but it's not about like So, so. When a head of state comes to the White House, you have to know everything. It's my job to know everything. Like, you know how to say their name, like what foods they like, their kids' names. Like, it's, that's my job. And Justin Trudeau brought his mother-in-law to the White House. His wife and mother-in-law came. And we were in the, we were upstairs. So the president first lady, they bring the heads of state up to their private residence for like drinks and like hanging out and looking over the balcony and all this fun stuff. So, y'all can't ever tell this, this is so off the record. Okay, so, like, so um, they're doing all that, and the first lady, this is a public country, she goes, how do you, <laughs> she goes, I can't even tell the story straight things. She goes, how do you, how do you say, oh, her mother-in-law's name? I had zero idea how to say it. <laughs> Who are you taking a photo or recording? Sir, back in the back. <laughs> this is extremely, okay. So I made it up, y'all. I made up how to say this woman's name. And I was like, Mrs. Blase. It's like, no, nah, she's like French or whatever. It's like, Mrs. Blase. And she's like, oh, God, Mrs. Blase. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> I must be so fired. Like, if she called, imagine the first thing in the United States calling head of state's mother-in-law the wrong name, especially on camera, right? So I'm just like, please don't call this one's name. And Mrs. Obama must have had a sixth sense that I was totally like not lying. And she never called her that name. Like she never, she was like, yes, ma'am, ma'am. And I was like, thank God. Um, so that's probably the worst for me because Mrs. Obama was very particular about how to say people's names. She used to get upset if we did not know how to say somebody's name properly because she said that's just disrespectful. Like we should know how to say somebody's name. And I understand, like if people mess up my name, I'm like, my name is Deisha. You know, not Dijon, not mustard. You know, like, I, I get whatever. So I feel like that was probably my hardest moment because my breath, I held my breath until that was the beginning of the night. And we had to go through dinner and cocktails and the receiving line and the show. That was like three and a half hours she could have said that woman's name wrong. And I was just like, so when they left, I was like, and then I looked up how to like say it for real. And it was like something French, like blah. So something I was like, so it's not blah thing? Like, <laughs> um, that was a, I have lots of war stories, but that's like a funny, that's like a slash funny one. Um, but I would say, um, how do I make memories? Is I look at it like I want people to enjoy things from their perspective, not what I think they will enjoy. So if I'm having like, we had something called a kid state dinner where the first lady would have a kid from each state, they would compete with a healthy recipe, and they would come to the White House, and we had a fancy dinner for them, right? And we could have easily been like, what, what should we do with these kids? We asked kids, like, what do you think would make a really cool, like, state dinner? Like, how would you like? And they're like, lots of colors, and this, and the other, like, a fun entertainment, and this, you know, we want something interactive, and we're like, that sounds great, right? So I think that I never took the opinion of just what I thought was 
school. I'm 42. Like, I don't know what an eight-year-old wants to, how they want to do things, but maybe if I ask a couple eight-year-olds, what do you think is cool nowadays? Like, that's how I really, even clients I help now, I say, like, what message are you trying to convey? I want it to be memorable. I want people, I don't want people sitting on their butts the whole time. I want them to be able to take home something. I want them to be able to enjoy the food, have memories where they continue. I do a lot of nonprofit events now, and now it's like I have to make events where people will open their wallets, right? So that's making them feel so special, even if they're not super special. <laughs> like making them feel, even if they're mean to me, I'm like, this is not the purpose. The purpose is for them to say, this organization cares so much about me that I care about them. I'm gonna open my wallet to help them do what they're doing, right? So I think for me is, I always try to do something different. Like I don't like, like I'm not a good like keynote, I don't want a keynote speaker where people feel bored, I want conversations, like I want like fun lights. If it's an event that's like a somber event, I want something more like, you know, where people really feel like the pain and the agony of an event. Like to say like, we want to get involved somehow. So I think that that's how I try to do it. I try to get more people involved than just the people in the room. It's just like, if this is something for everybody, then everybody should be involved in this, right? We should be appropriate. I should make sure that we have accessibility for people with disabilities. Like I should make sure of that. Nothing's an inconvenience to me. So I think that that's how I approach event planning. Um, and I've cut myself out of the little details. Like I'll do the creative part, but I don't want to do the napkins on the table. Like I listen, how you wipe your mouth is how you wipe your mouth, right? But like I want to be like, what's the experience that you're going to have here, which you're going to walk away from? And so that's how I try to. Any more questions? Ooh. <laughs> How much time do we have? Well, I'm also just staying down the street, so they're like, you can stay in <laughs> So you're obviously a very busy woman. What more could you to come to Lowell and speak, especially when the event got canceled? Bridget Daniel, that's right. <laughs> like, I mean, um, so first of all, I honor my commitments, right? Like, I'm not one of them. I'm not going to come back. Um, so that's number one. Number two, it's always a nice guy in New York. Um, that's number three. But also, like, you know, I love I, I love talking to people, obviously, as you guys can see. But I also like being very real with people. Like, I think that when people look me up, or they look at, I even have people be like, oh, you're not as fancy as I thought. I'm like, thanks. Um, you know, like, I mean, if you open up Vogue magazine, you're like, oh, there's Tisha in Vogue, or Marie Claire, like, she's on TV. That's lovely, and I'm very thankful for those opportunities, but that doesn't give you a background of who I am, right? And to me, sometimes when people look at that, they say like, oh, that's amazing what she did, and it's like so untouchable, it's so far, right? But when I come in person, it's just like, she really is a real person, and it's not that unattainable that I could do something that amazing, right? And so I think that that's what makes me always want to come speak to people, because I, I think I have number one a story to share, but it inspires people, which I didn't realize until after many people were like, you're so inspiring. I'm like, really, am I? Um, but I think that, you know, what Rich and Daniel, I think, have created, you know, on their own, you know, and that they do this, and they're so, like, they got my flight and my hotel, which was crazy, and they changed stuff last minute for me. They had some food and some cheese and crackers back there for me. Like, like that's amazing, particularly because, like, they're, they want this to come to this part, part of the country. Like, they want the leadership to happen over here in Massachusetts. Like that, I'm not too busy for that. Like I'm never too busy for stuff like this. Like for me, you know, sometimes it is an inconvenience. Like I flew up today, right? Yeah, I flew up today. <laughs> and, then I, and I take a train tomorrow, right? Back to New York, right? But I think that, you know, that's okay with me. Like, so what? You know, when people
people say that they're too busy to, to there's some things that I, I do say like, I don't, I'm not doing that. Like, I'm not doing that. But, to, you know, but when people say they're too busy to mentor, do other things, I have, I question their time management a little bit, right? Because I'm just like, are you that busy? Was somebody that busy to help you to get where you were? They weren't, right? So how dare you say now that you can't do it because you're too busy, but you surely took the benefits of somebody not being busy to help you. So I look at it like, you know, it all, you know, I hope one day I'm sitting in the audience listening to them talk, right? Like, and that's where we, that's the cycle of how this happens. But I wanna, I'm a real person, and I, I think that was only presentable in person. One last question. I've never been involved. <laughs> can you stay? Can we have you? Yes! Yes! yes. What do I do up here? I'll buy something too. I'll buy I'll go waiting room. I'll buy something too. I bet the rent's cheaper than New York. It's not all that. Was that really your question? Oh, you're one of the friends. Yes, um, I, I laugh a lot, if you can't tell. I laugh at myself a lot. Um, I also, I say this for the person who has the income to have the privilege that I have to be able to like, do stuff like yoga, right? And I can go do meditation places. And right now I'm not working a nine to five. And I'm very lucky to be able to, the first time I like to take two months off of working a nine to five to really address like financial things, right? So that's like stuff with my parents who stress me, who stress me out. But I think that like I deal with self-care by really just being very honest with myself. And that's where it starts and where it ends. You can go to all the yoga classes you want, you can go to all the meditation you want, but if you're still lying to yourself and you're still trying to do everything, you're still all over the place, like all that stuff is not gonna help so much. Maybe if you're continually be stressed out, I had to get off the hamster wheel and say, like, I'm tired, I'm out of breath, and I'm 42. Like I, I gotta slow down or I don't know how long I'm gonna be here, right? So I practice self-care by putting limits and boundaries, even when it doesn't feel good, right? Right? Even with my own family, you know, it's just like I'm sorry, like I I'm, I can't do this right now. And like, we can't believe because they're so used to me always being able to do everything that to them it's like being mean if I say I'm not going to do it. But I explain to them like <coughs> I can't handle this, and people it's so rude when you tell people I'm sorry I can't do this right now. Like I just I can't handle that. They're like. But they look at you like you have three heads, and you're just like, what? I, I can't. Like, I am sorry, right? So I think that, you know, again, I'm very lucky that I have a, I have a triangle of people that really help me out. I go to church, like every week, like, I love my church. Um, I have a personal trainer who I love, and then, um, and then I go to therapy. So that triangle of, of things within the middle, like yoga, meditation, writing, um, you know, but you have to balance that, because I still have to make income. So it's not like, I want people to be very clear that you don't leave the White House and walk out a millionaire. Like, not we didn't. Like, you know, I, it's not, that's not gonna happen. When I left the White House, I, I had to file for unemployment. Like, I couldn't get a job right away, right? So I still have to make income. So there's still things I have to do, like go speak or go do whatever, but I have a choice right now. But I think for me, self-care is, it looks like whatever you can afford and whatever you can do. Sometimes self-care is just drinking water and minding your own business. Like that's free, like that's free. Like mind your business and drink some water for free. Like, <laughs> you, don't need, you don't need to pay for a meditation class for your class, just go off by yourself and turn your phone off. Sometimes for me, I have a, me and my boyfriend have a no phone rule in the bedroom. Like no, it's a no phone zone, like no phone zone. Like so 
we're not gonna be on our phones at night because I get stressed out, anxiety over what's happening in the world. I feel like I gotta figure out how to fix it instead of going to bed. I get really ample sleep. I have blackout curtains, that really helps self care. Um, but I would say like, you know, it's whatever it looks like to you. There's no blueprint of what self-care is. It could be just dancing by yourself. It could be doing laundry, be whatever you want. It, for me, I love cleaning too. I love organizing and throwing stuff away. I just throw stuff away, I just throw stuff away. And my boyfriend's like, that's your White House memorabilia. I'm like, oh shoot. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just like, I'm cleaning. We're cleaning, winter cleaning, fall cleaning, summer cleaning. Um, but I think that that's, that's what I do. But I would, I would say that there's still a level of anxiety because, you know, I always, people always think of, you know, when you're at the White House, you're just going to do something so amazing, like just as amazing, like run Google, and you're like, I'm not doing that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so I think that I had to let go other expectations of what people thought I should be doing and who I was, and that right there was with self-care. But that's what I would say. But it's a, it's a process. I have not mastered it, to be very clear. I'm still working on it myself, and still working on it, but I feel so much better than I ever did. Well, thank you all for coming tonight, and thank, thank you. you thank you so much to Tisha coming from New York. All the way, all the way, <laughs> so far, y'all. No problem. It's an honor. Can you have Richard and Daniel? enjoyed this episode of lessons in leadership you can find more content like this featuring more leaders and leadership discussions 
wherever you listen to podcasts and at our website, leadersinlaw.org, for more information on this event and our series. Thanks for listening. Bye.